This episode is brought to you by Amazon Studios, presenting The Aeronauts, starring Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne, a suspenseful and visually stunning film that critics are calling a feast for the eyes from beginning to end, in theaters December 6th. It's so awful, isn't it? For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. But I do. And people are starting to notice. You think this is funny? <laughs> is this a joke to you? From LA Times Studios, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, where culture and entertainment meet. Even before Joker opened in theaters, it sparked debate over the violent nature of the film, and a narrative that seemed to track with that of the alienated white male shooter who's become our real-life recurring horror story. An exploration of a comic book character who has scared us for nearly 80 years, the film is dividing critics over the pity it seeks to elicit from the character of Joker, played by Joaquin Phoenix. We'll have our own debate here. That's coming up in a few minutes. But first, this news. The finale of the last season of Saturday Night Live featured Alec Baldwin as the president boasting about cruising his way to re-election. But now, Saturday Night Live's 45th season opener featured President Trump in high dudgeon, freaking out about the impeachment inquiry. And so joining me now to talk about the ways in which this impeachment news has impacted late-night TV, comedy, and celebrity culture, I'm joined by my colleague, Sanaya Kelly. Sanaya, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Since the impeachment news came out, that it seems like everybody's all revved up. Like, have you noticed a change in the way that late-night comedians are talking about this? I think they're just laying into Trump more than they ever have, especially because he's starting to show how in- unhinged he is in his remarks on Twitter. I think the the material is is too obvious for late night hosts not to make fun of him at every turn. And do you think that there's even a challenge in that, that now it's like, there's no, you can't parody something that already seems like a parody of our world. Watching SNL now, it's hard to find it as funny because Trump could easily just behave that way. It's it's, It's less of a parody now than imagining of what things are like behind closed doors. Well, it's interesting where, you know, the show Saturday Night Live, this is its 45th season, and it originally came up post-Watergate era of kind of an anti-authoritarian feeling. They used to make fun of Gerald Ford and then moving forward, making fun of other presidents, both Bush presidents, President Clinton. You know, they were sort of respectful, but still often teasing of President Obama. And now, in part, perhaps because of the way in which Trump, of course, infamously was a host of the show while he was running for president, they've had a very strange relationship. I think we give SNL a little too much credit sometimes, especially because, as you said, they had Trump on the show while he was running, and now we're here. So I wouldn't call myself a fan of SNL, and I don't really think they're funny, and I think most people feel that way. But I do like late-night hosts, and especially Jimmy Kimmel, because he's probably the meanest. This past weekend, there was kind of big news. Robert De Niro had gone on the show Reliable Sources on CNN, and he sort of made a real splash. This guy is should not be president, period. And when you say that, folks on Fox come after you. I remember the Tonys when he got up there and cursed. A lot of 
Chris doesn't have a view. Fuck him. Okay, well, you know, this is cable, Sorry. so it's not an FCC violation, Sorry. but it is still a Sunday morning. Well, I we're, do wonder we're why you choose of, to go that let way. Let me say something. Why do you we choose are to go a, that We way? are at a moment in our life, in this country, where this guy is like a gangster. He's come along and he's said things, done things we say over and over again. This is terrible. We're in a terrible situation. This De Niro interview is so interesting because he, he, does, he is rarely granting interviews to people and he made such a splash with his, with his expletive-laden remarks. But I think we're all just fatigued by Trump at this point. And De Niro just said what he, ha- what he meant. And I thought the funniest part was how the, um, the interviewer is like, this is cable, but it's a Sunday morning. <laughs> like, I, I thought it was hilarious how he had to check him like that. But I also, there's something, you know, so uh, there obviously had been the premiere of Robert De Niro's new film, The Irishman, was on Friday night. It went really well. And so the idea of him kind of rolling into CNN with sort of this devil-may-care attitude, I found really charming. And also, if there's anybody that you want to hear cuss out the president, it's kind of Robert De Niro. Like, I thought there was something really wonderful about the fact of, like, just him at that particular moment being the guy to say that stuff. Right. I think that they knew exactly what they were in for when they booked him. Uh, Sinano, sit tight. Uh, we're going to be back for a moment for our discussion on Joker. But first, we're going to turn to Glenn Whip for the Awards Minute. Glenn, thank you for being here. Great to see you again, Mark. You are freshly back from the New York Film Festival, where you were at the world premiere of Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Now, last week, when we talked about this before you went, you were a little dubious about the movie's awards prospects. How do you feel about that now that you've seen it? Was I dubious? I thought I was pretty excited about Maybe I was just trying to convince myself to, you know, fly five hours to see a movie. That That was the thing. But I was just kind of fingers crossed that that five and a half hour flight was going to be worth the effort. Was it? And it most definitely was. Yeah. And so do you see the movie as having strong across the board awards prospects? Yeah. Yeah. It's that kind of movie. You know, again, three hours, 29 minutes, just an epic decade spanning mob story. Back then, there was nobody in this country who didn't know who Jimmy Hoffa was. Get the gun out of his hand! You always charge a guy with a gun. With a knife, you run away. I mean, it opens with a tracking shot, like Martin Scorsese is so good at doing. But the tracking shot's through a nursing home. And that kind of sets the tone. I mean, death is just like hovering over every minute of this movie. It's just filled with regret and remorse and very ruminative. Now, you wrote a terrific piece for The Times about that screening, that party afterwards. What was it like being there? What was that Tavern on the Green party like? It was insane. I've never been in a room so crammed full of people in my life. Sidling over to to get to where Pacino and De Niro and Scorsese were sitting I made my way over to Scorsese because he was the one I really wanted to talk to. Finally, talked to Scorsese like after a half hour of of just kind of inching my way closer and closer and getting past security. And but it was fun. The running time of the movie is something people have talked about. The fact that this movie is going to be released by Netflix is something people have been really talking about. Do you see either of those factors as being important with regards to the movie's awards chances? I think the Netflix thing is going to be less of a factor. The running time 
will be interesting how many breaks people will take over three and a half hours. You consider the front runner right now mm. to be Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Do we have, with Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, a new front runner? It's really interesting to see the two of them, those two movies, those two filmmakers, be kind of in competition this year. It makes for just kind of a dream matchup. And, I, and they are, I think, the two front runners right now. I'm sure this movie we're going to be talking about quite a bit more over the next few months. And so thank you for being here for this week's installment of the Glenn Whip Awards Minute. And now let's talk about Joker. And so still with us is entertainment columnist Glenn Whip and film reporter Sonia Kelly. And joining us from Parts Unknown in Gotham is film critic Justin Chang. Hello. Justin, now you referred to the movie in your review as its prestige pulp ambitions. What is it about this iteration of Todd Phillips' Joker that seems to be sparking all this debate? Yeah, I mean, prestige pulp is something that you could say even about Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. Joker, I think, plays like it wants to have the same sensibility, but just shorter, nastier, a lot more nihilistic and brutal. And of course, because it's from the perspective of the Joker himself, in contrast with Heath Ledger's brilliant performance in The Dark Knight, where he's a supporting character and deployed very sparingly, but has a huge impact on that narrative. Here, you are just up close and personal with Walking Phoenix as the Joker for two hours. It's done in a very grittily realistic style by Todd Phillips, which is new for him, I think. It's explicitly indebted to Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro two of their many collaborations, specifically The King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. Robert De Niro plays a late-night talk show host who is Joaquin Phoenix's character, Arthur Fleck's idol. He wants to be a stand-up comedian, just like the De Niro character. So that's very much King of Comedy. And the whole movie, I think, is a tribute of sorts to Taxi Driver in terms of its portrait of a mentally unstable person who's Demons reflect the demons of the city that spawned him. And the fact, too, that Joker premiered at major international film festivals and won the Golden Lion, the top prize, at the Venice Film Festival, and then went on to play Toronto, these are prestige launch pads. This is the studio, Warner Brothers' very shrewd way of positioning the movie as something that is more artistically substantial than the blockbuster comic book movie norm. And now, Glenn, you've written a little bit about Joker, and you declared that you found the movie cynical and superficial. And so do you feel like it already has been overblown that from getting this kind of prestige launch at Venice, at Toronto, winning the Golden Lion, like, are you surprised to see this movie getting that kind of response? Well, it was interesting seeing it Toronto after it won the Golden Lion at Venice. And so expectations were higher than going in. And it didn't play particularly well at Toronto in a very large auditorium. The feeling after the film, it received pretty tepid response. As opposed to eight-minute ovation it received at Venice. I think largely from people I spoke with at Toronto, it was like, really? There's nothing there. I mean, it's it's a very cynical, glib treatment of societal malaise. And it's not nearly as edgy or as nervy as it thinks it is. 
So you kind of go through this film waiting for something interesting to happen, and it kind of does. It takes about an hour and a half for it to finally happen. And this performance by Joaquin Phoenix, who's, I mean, there's some real wacky pleasures in watching it, but it's also just kind of exhausting and very much lacking in dimension. And so it just keeps hitting the same note over and over, but just louder and louder until it explodes at the end. And I wonder when people see it, what the response will be. Will it be kind of deflating? Like, is that all there is? Well, the movie does end on a pretty downbeat note. And so I think it's hard to imagine like a rousing applause at the end of this movie. Now, Sanaya, for you as someone who's a fan of superhero movies, this film, it takes the character of Joker, but it's a sort of a new story. It's outside of this sort of official canon. How did you respond to the movie? Like, how did you feel about it in its relationship to just superhero-ness? I'm pretty much a hipster, so I did not care about this movie whatsoever going into it, especially because everybody was talking about it. I was like, this is DC, so let's manage our expectations a little bit. So when I got there, I was actually blown away, but it was relentlessly dark. And I did spend the entire time checking the exits of the theaters because I thought somebody was going to come in and kill us, even though it said private screening because it's an all-media screening. But that said, I did like, (laughs) enjoyed the movie. I thought Joaquin did an amazing job. I thought the script did service to the character because you can't, do a Joker movie and not go dark. That character is just like an iconic villain for a reason, so... But tell me more about this feeling you had that something might happen to you in the theater. Do you feel like all the attention the movie has gotten, the news reports, the sort of weird hysteria that it's kind of been generating, do you feel like that was in your head when you were just watching the movie itself? I feel like it was bits of that, but also Arthur Fleck seems like an incels, what he believes that he is. So I felt like people would really empathize with this character. I empathized with the character in the beginning when he was just getting beat up for no reason multiple times. But and I think I held that empathy th- the whole way through because, I, I mean, he was mentally ill, especially when he pulls out the card. Like, I have a illness that actually like made me tear up. That's actually very sad. But I just felt like so many people could relate to that story. And that, more than anything, was terrifying than thinking anything about the school shootings or any of the mass shootings that have been happening. Because, Justin, obviously we are the kind of people who are just steeped in the discourse around a movie like Joker. So we, in some ways, are already on the third, fourth wave of how people are talking about Joker. With a movie like this, is it hard, either for you as a critic or do you think for audiences, to actually see this movie with kind of a clean slate? To actually like approach the movie on its own? Or do you think audiences are going to be taking all this metatextual worry into the theater with them? Yeah, I wonder how much of all that metatextual stuff most moviegoers will even have read or absorbed. So I do think most people are going to like the movie. I mean, I don't often put myself in the position of predicting, will the audience like this or what will their, where will their headspace be, but, or imagine what their cinema scores will be. But I do think that when you have a well-known intellectual property that is given a sort of grown-up spin or a thoughtful spin, whatever you think. And clearly we have a wide range of opinion on Joker, but the mere fact that some ambition and some seriousness, even if it's just self-seriousness, is brought to bear, I think the audience usually responds to that. And when you wed that seriousness with extreme violence as well, all the more so. So I think that they are going to be... 
I don't know why to say captivated by this movie, but I feel like its darkness is sort of right up their alley. And that's not a statement about, you know, I, there's been so much talk, of course, about does this movie have the potential to sow seeds of violence? Is it going to incite real life violence? And it's like anything can incite anything. I don't even want to go down that path. I mean, we've kind of had to speculate. My mindset is that I think we all feel very strongly in the rights of artists and the pitfalls of censorship. I have to say, though, that given just the anxiety around this movie, I have never been more eager for something to just be in and out of theaters as quickly as possible. And so, you know, make its box office millions and be done. And of course, though, I think the movie is actually going to be in theaters for a while. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Studios, presenting Honey Boy, an emotional coming-of-age film that critics are calling a cinematic act of courage and nothing short of miraculous, starring Shia LaBeouf, Lucas Hedges, and Noah Jupe, in theaters November 8th. Glenn, what do you think it is about this movie, about Joker, that's inspiring these levels of seemingly genuine cultural anxiety and fear, what's in this movie that's inspiring this kind of concern? Well, I wonder if it's a peculiar to America. Is the film opening internationally this weekend too? Is it opening all over the world? Yes, okay. Are they having these kinds of fears in other countries? Or what does that say specifically about the United States that you would be in a movie theater looking for the exit? I don't think that's true in other countries. So what is it about the United States? What's the, I mean, I don't think I need to say it. We're in just a much more violent country. And this movie certainly leans into that. But is it something about the way in which this movie leans into that? I mean, I think that it sets it up as, Sanai, as you were saying, it's about this single, lonely man who eventually acts out is violent himself, but also that violence then becomes, and you know, I guess I'm verging into spoiler territory here, that violence becomes in some ways a match that sets off something bigger. That, And part of that is because of who some of his early victims are, he sets off this sort of wave of discontent with the rich. I mean, after the first acts of violence in the movie, a newspaper headline that you see people reading is Kill the Rich. And what do you think about the fact that that's where this movie goes, that this movie heads towards that 1% economic inequality aspect? Is that part of why it's raising this kind of anxiety? I mean, I suppose it doesn't really handle those societal issues in any kind of meaningful way. I don't think that this movie is going to inspire violence because of its intellectual depth. <laughs> <laughs> because it doesn't have any. I really feel like Todd Phillips made this movie to be a provocative piece, but I don't feel like there's really any kind of dimension to it. Sonia, how do you feel about the fact that in the movie, the ostensible villain of the movie is the Wayne family, Thomas Wayne, father of the character of Bruce Wayne, who of course goes on to become the Batman. Like, did that feel like an interesting or provocative change to have the Wayne family be these kind of jerk, rich villains? There's one point where Thomas Wayne calls the people who are struggling at the bottom clowns and says, I'm the solution. I can give you what you need. And that obviously called to mind our current administration. So I don't think that'll necessarily inspire violence. I don't think it'll cause something that wasn't already present in somebody. But I do think that people are going to project their own feelings about this society, specifically America, 
onto the character of the Joker when they go see it. And that's kind of inevitable at this point. Justin, I know you've written about this movie in relation to the many other movies that are currently coming out, including Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, that are dealing with a lot of these same sort of issues of economic inequality. How do you feel about the way that Joker in particularly handles this issue? I would agree with Glenn that I do think its treatment of those issues is pretty glib. It's sort of telegraphing these ideas rather than really developing them. Maybe people are inclined to give a movie too much credit even for having ideas or for gesturing toward them. I don't think the movie does too much more than gesture toward them, although the subplot involving Thomas Wayne is, I think, pretty ingeniously integrated into the story in terms of how it builds and reaffirms the Batman mythology and in terms of how its connection to Joker himself, to Arthur Fleck himself and his own story, his own future. But I think what the perceived danger of this movie is that it expresses a measure of sympathy for someone who seems to fit the mold of an incel or of just the kind of person who we see again and again commits mass shootings, the lonely, mentally troubled white male misfit. And I think the word sympathy is a very difficult one because there are some who think that no sympathy is deserved. But I think sympathy is a huge umbrella. This movie elicits your pity and your terror. Does it expect you to be jumping out of your seat and applauding when the Joker is committing his violent acts or when he is sort of voguing on the steps of Gotham City and in this sort of slow-mo dance sequences where he is embracing his newfound calling as a homicidal maniac. I mean, a lot of people may have different answers to that. To me, the movie is something of a giant Rorschach blot. Some people will see those scenes as a glorification. I personally do not. I can only judge my own reaction, which is that I felt pity for this man because partly because he's played by Joaquin Phoenix and I am conditioned to my heart kind of breaks for walking phoenix whenever i see him on the screen he is just that good at humanizing characters who are hard to love but i was also just i recoiled from this character and i was completely repelled by it too and your heart also breaks for him in this movie because he is so emaciated he lost 52 pounds and todd phillips points that out at every possible manner (laughs) and fashion he's often just half-naked throughout the much of the movie, and the camera just kind of zeroing in on his ribcage and different contortions of his spine. And, I mean, again, I haven't said many complimentary things about the film, but, I mean, certainly you can't deny the commitment to this performance. And I think the weight loss goes beyond a stunt. I think it's really speaks to what they're trying to do with this character and how society has kind of eaten away at him. And Justin, I, w- I want to get back to that that idea you brought up of, of the movie being kind of a Rorschach test, that, you know, maybe we as an every viewer is going to bring what they, you know, something to it. And, and I can't help but think also, you know, this has been, as we're recording this conversation, this has been kind of a tough week for director Todd Phillips. When the movie had its premiere in Los Angeles last weekend, they specifically did not do any interviews before the movie. Like there was no official kind of press line as there typically would be for a movie like this because they didn't want to have to answer questions about the movie. And then through the course of this week and 
interview was published by Vanity Fair in which he made some comments about why he had shifted to making a drama like this instead of the comedies that he's best known for, like the hangover pictures, and that he felt that like political correctness had made it so that you couldn't be funny in the way he wanted to be funny anymore. And that's now like a whole other way of even reading the movie. And so it's interesting how we're typically, I think we turn to filmmakers to maybe want to help us with a little guidance here, like explain your movie, please. It turns out that in this case, Todd Phillips, the director and co-writer of the movie, is actually maybe one of the worst people to sometimes be asking, or he's not always been the best advocate for the movie and has been sowing more confusion and discontent around it. And that, to me, has been like a really interesting dilemma that now the movie is continuing to take forward. Yeah, it reminds me that a lot of filmmakers, even talented filmmakers, are not the best spokespeople for their work sometimes. I'm almost reminded of a much better movie than Joker, Zero Dark Thirty, when Catherine Bigelow and Mark Boll were called on to defend the movie's treatment of torture. I think their movie spoke better for them than they did. Even though it's a lesser achievement, I do think that Joker speaks better than Todd Phillips certainly does. And at the same time, it's weird because I think everyone's reservations about this movie going in before they'd seen it even was... How is Todd Phillips going to make a good movie out of this? And for many, the answer is, well, he hasn't. For me, I had to say I was having not really been a fan of, you know, whatever. I think I liked the first Hangover movie, and I don't think I've liked much else of what old school, sure. But I don't know. I've not been a fan of the Phillips of. But yeah, I do think often it's funny. We sometimes give Terrence Malick a hard time for being, he's not a recluse, but he, you know, in terms of the media, he is for not explaining his work to us. And then someone like Todd Phillips opens his mouth and it makes you grateful and wish that more people were like Terrence Malick. Although it's funny, the one thing, since I saw the movie, and this is, I know, a relatively minor detail, that scene that you mentioned, Justin, where uh, Joker is sort of like, it's the first time we see him in the outfit that he's in on the poster. It's sort of like his real like Joker outfit. And he's walking down these stairs and it's a real kind of hero moment. And the music that you're hearing is that Jock Jam classic, Rock and Roll Part 2 by Gary Glitter. Gary Glitter, of course, is now a convicted pedophile. And you can't help but wonder, like, is this like a purposeful troll? Did he choose that song by that guy in particular? Or did he just like the beat? It just fit in that moment. To me, like a small detail like that is the kind of thing that I can't help but like personally obsess over because you're wondering like, what are they really, what's going on there? Yeah, you do feel as if, I remember reading about that detail too, and it's, off-putting you don't fully know what to make of it and you do sort of wonder if phillips and his collaborators are just trolling you and and if the movie ultimately does feel like a put-on in some ways because he's showing it from the perspective of a bad guy and because you ultimately know that everything is just hurtling toward the creation of this joker persona the movie feels very i use this word in my review it feels very overdetermined in a way that i think a lot of other comic book movies do not I think what you said, the words you use, put on, that's a very interesting way to describe the movie. And I hope Todd Phillips just keeps giving interviews because to me, it just <laughs> exposes how hollow this whole thing is. And then, Sanaya, it's, to me, it's interesting. At one point, the character of Joker specifically says, I don't believe in anything. And for you, 
Where did the movie kind of leave you at the end? How did you feel when it was over? Like, I know for myself, I just felt sort of like a little alienated and like bummed out when it was done. What feelings did you have when the movie was over? I was definitely bummed out as well. I saw the movie with my cousin and she also had no interest in seeing it like at all. She actually tried to cancel on me before by director. And then she just went to Baskin and she's like, wow, that's like a really good movie. I have, we haven't seen a good movie in so long, <laughs> like we, like in a performance like that. So she didn't want to watch anything else. She just wanted to like discuss it and then zone out. She's like, she said, this is the kind of movie you have to watch at the end of the day because there's nothing else you can do after. So it's it's interesting to hear how you guys like feel. I mean, and I understand everything that you're saying and I can see that as well. But I think as somebody who has had to see many bad movies in a row, when you see a good one and then you see a good performance, that in and of itself is exciting. And I did feel like everybody put their all into it. I don't, I'm not going to speak for the director, but I thought it was all there on the page. I, I liked everything they had to do with the Waynes and how they tied it into... Arthur's story, and I thought Joaquin was amazing, so I thoroughly enjoyed it. Smile, though your heart is aching, smile, even though it's breaking. And with that, I think that's a, a good place for us to, to wrap up this conversation about Joker. And so, Justin Chang, Glenn Whip, Sonia Kelly, I thank all of you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks to our producers, Katie Cooper and Paige Heimson, and our engineer, Mike Heflin, and LA Times Studios. Thank you to CNN's Reliable Sources for the clip of Robert De Niro. Listen to The Real on Apple, Spotify, at latimes.com slash podcasts, or wherever you get your audio. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. <laughs>